You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution Podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution Podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution Podcast. I must remind you that starving a child is violence. Neglecting school children is violence. Punishing a mother and her family is violence. Discrimination against a working man is violence. Ghetto housing is violence. Ignoring medical need is violence. Contempt for poverty is violence. Take a guess at who said those words. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. No. How about Coretta Scott King? I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. When you get married, they say that two become one. So why then, when we look at the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we see an activist, a leader, a peacemaker. But when we look at his wife, Coretta Scott King, we tend to only see a wife. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing bad about being someone's wife. But oftentimes, in our society, we treat being a wife like being a background character or a supporting role at best. But Coretta Scott King was nothing of the sort. She was determined and a brave civil rights activist in her own right. And long before she was a king, she was a woman longing to make a difference in the world. She was a proud Scot. The Scott family had a rich history in Highburger, Alabama, where Coretta was born on April 27, 1927. They lived on land that they owned, nearly 300 acres, which was unique during a time where sharecropping was at an all-time high. Growing up, Coretta had examples of parents who taught her lessons in strength and perseverance. Making your own way and fighting to keep the things you worked hard for is hard now, and it was even harder back then. Her father was an entrepreneur in the area who owned a very successful convenience store and auto shop. Prior to that, he owned a lumber mill, and less than a month after having it in his possession, it was burned to the ground because of the threat that it posed to white businessmen in the area. When he was given an option to sell it and refused, arson was their form of retaliation. And before losing his lumber mill to a fire, their home was also burned to the ground by white supremacists when Coretta was just 15 years old. The family was absolutely devastated, but Coretta's father insisted that they press on. In that moment, crying would not have changed anything. It was up to them to keep pressing forward as a family and be thankful that no one died in the fire. It was Thanksgiving night after all. They rebuilt and kept their heads high. Her mother was one of the first women in the area to drive a car. A car belonged to their family. What she lacked in a formal education, she made up for with her musical gifts. She was also her husband's right hand and helped run the family business. She was very progressive for the time and encouraged her children, regardless of gender, to get an education so that they could be productive and independent members of society. There were times that Coretta worked tirelessly in the field to help support the family. They grew their own food and took care of their cows. At this time, school was not free past the sixth grade, so she also earned 60 cents for picking 100 pounds of cotton for another farm, about $10 a day. Back then, she had a reputation for being mean and not straying from a fight if she needed to. As she grew up, she became more and more determined to change things in a positive way. 
I'm sure no one would blame her if she grew up and had a hardened heart or feelings of hopelessness. But that wasn't in her nature. That wasn't how she and her siblings were raised. She prayed and meditated a lot, which gave her inner peace. She graduated from high school valedictorian, but her graduating class was only about 18 people. She was headed off to college, a smart person, but with many more lessons to learn. She wouldn't follow in her sister's footsteps. She got accepted into Antioch College in Ohio on a full scholarship. Antioch was an integrated school. Coretta's college experience was about to shape and develop so many of her ideologies that she would carry on further into her life. When she arrived, she realized that she wasn't as prepared in certain areas as she had hoped for the next chapter of her life. She even had to take classes that offered more educational assistance to get her up to speed. She majored in elementary education and minored in voice. In college, Coretta was exposed to so many different types of races, ethnicities, nationalities, and religions. And she wouldn't just go to school with white people, she would live with them. And during this time, she would even date a white Jewish boy. The relationship did come to a close once they realized that they wouldn't be able to make it work under the current racial climate at the time. But this experience opened her eyes to a different type of white person. It solidified a fact that she already had carried in her heart. That not all white people were bad, even though the ones she grew up with treated her family like they were less than human. They were just people like anyone else. This college experience was a kind of microcosm of how things could be. Sort of. Racism didn't magically disappear because she was up north. During her time there, Coretta still experienced discrimination. A requirement for her major was teaching experience, but the nearest public school system she needed the hours with did not allow black teachers. She took her concerns all the way to the president of her college, who could not have cared less. In her autobiography, she recalls that he had a dog named Nigger. Could she have gone to another district further away? Sure. But why should she? Coretta began to make more and more noise about what she was experiencing. She even wrote to the administration, but no one seemed to listen. Ultimately, she was able to finish her program, but this stirred something in her. Her defeat did not discourage her. If anything, she wanted to get more involved in making changes. She became involved with five different human rights organizations, including the school's chapter of the NAACP and the Progressive Party. The Progressive Party was a political party at the time that was progressive. Surprise, surprise. They were in favor of things like universal health care, desegregation, more publicly funded programs, etc. But it did have some suspected ties to communism with possible communist members. This made the affiliation with the party a little controversial. There, she encountered Paul Robeson, a black man. This man had done everything from performing to activism to even playing in the NFL. Coretta admired his activism and performances. She would later model her performances after his. It was a combination of singing, storytelling, and speeches. She even had the opportunity to sing at the same event as him. Her own ideologies were starting to take shape. She was certain that she aligned most closely with pacifism. She enjoyed spending time with Quakers who shared a similar philosophy. Just so we're clear, pacifism doesn't mean pushover. It supports solving problems without the need for violence. And all of this happened before she had even met Martin Luther King Jr. As a matter of fact, when they finally did meet, she wasn't sure that he was even her type. It was their shared philosophy that brought them closer together. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Coretta was going to go out on a limb and face another challenge post-grad. A scholarship hadn't come through just yet for her to study at the New England Conservatory in Boston, but she went anyway. 
She wanted to study classical music and perform, and she would be one of few students of color to do so. She was opening doors and making sure future black students could come in behind her. For a while, she struggled. She earned money working two jobs, one of which was cleaning the building she lived in. She also was blessed by the kindness of others who believed in her dreams. Around this same time, Martin Luther King Jr. was also in Boston. He was studying to obtain his PhD. A mutual friend of theirs insisted that they get together. Coretta wasn't exactly sold, but her friend had already given Martin her number. She wasn't sure their views would line up. From what her girlfriend told her, he was on track to becoming a minister. Coretta loved the Lord, but the idea of being a preacher's wife wasn't really in line with what she had imagined for her life. They spoke on the phone and he was eager to take her out. He was shorter than she expected. He was also pledging Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, the first black intercollegiate fraternity on a college campus in America at the time, and was missing his iconic mustache. Try to imagine that for a moment. The MLK, you know, without a mustache. It's worth mentioning that Coretta was also a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, the first black intercollegiate sorority in America. So this was something they had in common, and at a glance, it seemed like the only thing. But nevertheless, she decided to proceed with the date. When she went out with him, she learned how much she misjudged him. They shared a lot of the same social and political beliefs. This earned Martin some bonus points for sure, and the date went well. Martin was already head over heels. He was still looking for a wife, even though he was dating a girl back home that his parents picked out for him. I guess she didn't have that spark that he was looking for, and according to him, Coretta was the total package. But that's a lot of pressure to put on somebody after a first date. Even though he was sure in his heart that he had met the one, Coretta wanted to get to know him first. She also had aspirations and passions that she wasn't ready to abandon just to be some man's wife. But over time, her affection caught up with his. They had fun together. He was thoughtful. When things got serious, she went to Atlanta to meet his parents, but Martin's father wasn't exactly her biggest fan. He felt there were lots of other girls who had a lot more to offer his son. The Kings were a prominent family, and Martin Luther King Jr. was next in line to preach at Ebenezer Baptist Church. We all know Coretta was definitely a catch, and she did too. When Martin's father was going on and on about how great all these other girls were, Coretta let him know to his face that she had a lot to offer as well. Fortunately, MLK Sr. warmed up to the idea of having her as his daughter-in-law. Their upcoming marriage was the talk of the town. Women loved Martin Luther King Jr., and I'm sure they were devastated to find out that he decided to settle down with Coretta. They got married on her family's land in Alabama, and Martin Sr. officiated the wedding. They had only known each other a little over a year, but about their love, they were sure. She did make a few small changes to an otherwise very traditional wedding ceremony. She wore a whimsical dress covered in lace and tulle, and she requested a portion of the vows that required she obey and submit be taken out. Martin was fine with this, which was pretty progressive of him, considering it was the 1950s. Coretta wasn't going to blindly obey anybody, husband or no husband. She had a mind of her own. And now that she was married, what about her music? Well, Coretta completed her studies and refused to give up on music. So while they lived in Montgomery, Alabama, where MLK Jr. was preaching at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, she became very involved in the choir and teaching music. They also welcomed their first daughter on November 17, 1955. They named her Yolanda, but frequently called her Yoki as a nickname. While in Montgomery, they would also become wrapped up in the Montgomery bus boycott. The Montgomery bus boycott was sparked by Rosa Parks, refusing to give up her seat on the bus. 
Mind you, she was sitting in the colored section, but when the whites-only section became full, her row was asked to move. She was not the first black person in the position who refused to give up their seat. Many of those before her were attacked, arrested, or killed for their actions. Rosa Parks was affiliated with the NAACP and well-known in her community. She was also seen as the perfect victim, someone people would sympathize with and that the movement could push to the forefront. She was arrested, and this sparked the desire for black residents to protest for their right to sit anywhere on the bus. But it really wasn't just about seats on the bus. It was about steps toward equality. The Women's Political Council organized and spread the word about the bus boycott. MLK Jr. was nominated to be at the forefront of this movement. He would become the president of the Montgomery Improvement Association, or MIA, as a result. It was all hands on deck. The backlash to the boycott was severe. White citizens felt like they were losing too much ground. The Supreme Court had ruled that schools needed to be integrated, and now it seemed buses were in danger of being integrated too. They used intimidation, threats, violence, and even threw urine on those who walked in protest. And the King family in particular had to endure harassing phone calls day and night to the house, demanding that they end the boycott. There were threats, and things got so bad at one point, they had to unplug the phone just to get some sleep. Sometimes Coretta would snap back at the harassers, but Martin encouraged her to be patient with them. But threats turned into actions. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. On January 30th, 1956, someone threw a bomb onto their porch. Martin was not home, but Coretta and her baby and a friend of theirs were. Fortunately, they all made it to the back of the house, away from the blast, before it was too late. The blast destroyed their porch and a part of the front of the home. But surprisingly, Coretta was not shaken up about it. This is not the first time that white supremacy had come directly to her doorstep. Martin Sr. was not a fan of them continuing to stay in Montgomery, but Martin Jr. felt this cause was worth fighting, for it was worth the risk. And Coretta agreed. This boycott got a lot of notoriety because it was so effective. But it's important that we mention a protest like this didn't just work because people stopped riding the bus for days or weeks even. Those involved in the movement were in it for the long haul. They also understood that people still had to get where they had to go. So they depended on each other for carpooling. They used car services, they rode bikes, and then in some cases they walked together many miles, rain or shine, on time or late. There were alternatives to still get where they needed to go in order to apply pressure to the busing system, and it worked. At first, they only estimated about 60% of people would actually participate, but morning after morning, they were thrilled to see that the buses were empty. After over a year of boycotting, over a year of walking, harassment, arrests, violence, threats, and carpooling, on December 21, 1956, the bus system in Montgomery, Alabama was desegregated. Coretta would crank up her fundraising efforts after this. She performed at a huge benefit concert in New York City, alongside Harry Belafonte and Duke Ellington. This would be the start of a long friendship between Coretta and Harry. This movement was the beginning of a long journey that Coretta and Martin were about to embark on together. Its success meant that Martin would be pushed further and further into the movement. 
the attack on their home would not be the last act of violence that the family would face. Martin would be arrested for the first time in Montgomery. This is also around the same time the FBI began surveilling the King family. Still, Coretta understood the risk. She knew who she married, and she knew that at any point she, her children, and the love of her life could be in danger. But she was determined not to let those with hate in their heart shake her emotionally or dampen her faith and what they were working towards. In her autobiography, she describes her and Martin being almost like one person. So when he was arrested and jailed, she would feel as though she was emotionally imprisoned. His hurts were her hurts, his worries, her worries, and vice versa. Martin also had a history of depression, so there were times that she had to be strong for both of them on top of raising the family. Now that two of them had joined the fight with everything going on in the South, preachers from all over decided to form the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or the SCLC. It was headquartered in Atlanta, and Martin was the president. During their first meeting, she opened and presided over it. Martin was supposed to do it, but he had to assist another pastor after his home was bombed, as well as his church. And this wouldn't be the first or last time she would be involved with the organization. Throughout the movement, Coretta would perform over 50 freedom concerts in order to fundraise for the org. During these concerts, she was playing different church songs and spirituals, as well as mixing stories about the struggles and the work that was being done. It was a very effective and engaging model that she learned while in college. It could be argued that her performances brought in a decent chunk of the much-needed funds to support the organization. On March 5, 1958, she gave the Women's Day Address at New Hope Baptist in Denver. She also filled in for Martin wherever need be. The desire for women to take up space and have a seat at the table is something that nagged at Coretta. There were so many women who weren't given the chance to make their voices heard. This is why when she did have an opportunity to speak and perform, she took it. In her autobiography, she recalls an argument that she and Martin had. In the argument, he felt that she would never be satisfied being the wife and the mother of his children. She explained to him that although she loved those things, she couldn't be just those things or she would lose her mind. On one occasion, Martin told her that he was the one that had a call over his life, and Coretta reminded him that she had always felt that she had a calling as well. She was adamant in her disapproval of the Vietnam War and even convinced Martin of the importance of taking a stance on the issue. She had a mind that thought about the issues of the world and helped Martin to do the same. And I believe she was right. This was her calling, to take the movement global for the rest of her life. In 1962, she became involved with the Women's Strike for Peace. She spoke out against nuclear testing, for the effects of nuclear testing were a danger to children and families. Many of them were mothers themselves and thought it important to make their voices heard through nonviolent demonstrations. Coretta served as a delegate for the organization at the Disarmament Conference in Switzerland. They were also both there to witness Ghana gain their freedom. The two of them traveled all over the world together to places like India to study more about Gandhi especially. A lot of the elements of their nonviolent movement were based on the nonviolence that Gandhi championed. Martin was so dedicated, in fact, that he also wanted to forego worldly possessions. This was a stance that Coretta wasn't exactly on board with. If they were going to have a family, she was going to need things like a home and a car to support that family. Martin would bend on these issues, but insisted that they not live a lavish lifestyle in any way. It would take 13 years before they owned a home, and prior to that, they rented or stayed with friends or family. As a matter of fact, Harry Belafonte, a good friend of the family and well-known performer, even offered to pay for a nanny to give Coretta some assistance while Martin was locked up in Birmingham. Martin did not approve. Having a nanny was something that wouldn't look good in his eyes. Throughout their marriage, 
Martin was in and out of jail about 29 times and had been stabbed by a mentally unwell woman at a book signing. He was stabbed to the point where if they had tried to pull the knife out or if he had even sneezed while the blade was in, he could have died. Martin had also been accused of lying on his taxes and stealing money from the movement, which was not true. And did I already mention that the King family was also now heavily under the surveillance of the illegal FBI counterintelligence program, also known as COINTELPRO? There was a lot going on. We've mentioned that program on the podcast before, but as a reminder, many people and organizations that were disrupting the status quo at the time, whether they be violent or nonviolent, were being targeted and taken down. But more on that later. Oh, and during all of this, Coretta would give birth to three more children. Their family grew to include her, Martin, their oldest daughter Yolanda, Martin Luther III, Dexter, and their youngest, Bernice Albertine, whom had just been born only a few weeks after Martin ended up in jail in Birmingham. And why was Martin in jail exactly? Well, Martin had gone down to Alabama in order to help with the discrimination and segregation going on in Birmingham, Alabama. He held a demonstration on Good Friday and ended up in jail as a result. Rather than being in the pulpit on Easter Sunday, he was in jail. It was during this time the Kings had a pretty good relationship with the Kennedys. They had helped Dr. King get out of jail on one occasion already. They also helped Kennedy gain the much-needed support of black voters. So, when Martin was arrested and Coretta had not heard from him, which was very much unlike him, she became worried and made the phone call. She was doing everything in her power to make sure he was safe. Bull Connor is someone whose name you may not recognize, but you're probably familiar with his work. He was in charge of public safety in Birmingham at the time. He was known for his use of fire hoses and attack dogs on protesters. He had even been giving the Kennedys a run for their money and was doing everything in his power to stop progress. To make matters even worse, the governor at the time, George Wallace, was actively anti-segregation. We've mentioned him before in our Shirley Chisholm episode. He's the man who said segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Coretta had her work cut out for her. But in the meantime, she was able to reach the president and make sure that Martin was getting adequate accommodations, such as showering and a mattress while he was in prison. With the improvements made by Coretta's actions, Martin's spirits were lifted slightly. It was during this arrest that he wrote his historic letters from a Birmingham jail. This moment is just one of many examples showing how everything we remember Martin for, Coretta was right there. Where was Coretta during the March on Washington? marching, just like everyone else. And when Martin began his speech, fellow activist Ralph Abernathy made sure to obtain a chair so that she could sit right behind him. They had gone over the speech together leading up to this moment. The I have a dream portion was improvised on his part, and she was pleased to see how it all came together. She was disappointed, though, that when it came time to meet the president, she was not allowed to attend, even though she had spoken to him over the phone. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. This was something that she and Martin worked very hard for. Martin had been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964 and the American Liberty Medallion in 1965, and all of the nation was talking about the civil rights movement, for better or for worse. During the protest in Selma, Coretta protested along her family, fundraising and speaking all over the country. She even met Malcolm X during this time. Later, she would become good friends with his widow, Betty Shabazz. The movement was really picking up steam. And just like a hater, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover wanted to knock the King family down from that high. John F. Kennedy had tried to warn Martin that the FBI was starting to get too curious about him. Bobby Kennedy had allowed some of the surveillance to take place, but the FBI was taking it to another level. 
At this point, the civil rights movement wasn't just about racism. It had grown into a broader understanding of rights for the working class and people on a global scale. Martin began speaking out more and more about the flaws in our current system. He was unifying and he was hated for it and Coretta too. They were being disruptive. They were disturbing the status quo in a nonviolent way. There was very little legally their opposition could make stick. It started with labeling MLK a communist, saying that he had communist speechwriters and that he was associated with communists and that he himself supported communism and was therefore a threat to the American people. Again, there was no evidence to substantiate these claims and people continued to stand behind the movement. Hoover then attacked Martin's character, calling him a liar and an adulterer. The FBI began surveilling the King family heavily. If Martin got in or out of a car, they knew about it. If he had a new associate, they knew about it. If Coretta called him, they knew about it. They would send tapes to the house with evidence of Martin Luther King's extramarital affairs. Coretta was the one who opened the tapes. Martin wasn't home nearly as much as she was. Of course, she would have been livid if there was anything substantial on them, but there wasn't. Even to this day, there was no concrete evidence that Martin was having an affair. Just hearsay. Hoover wanted her to leave him because he knew how important her support was. Without Coretta, he felt Martin would be weaker and more vulnerable to psychological attacks. They hoped that Martin's depression would consume him. They also sent a letter to Martin, urging him to kill himself, which Coretta also read. In her autobiography, Coretta says that she never doubted her husband's fidelity, that she knew him better than anybody, and that if he was cheating, she would absolutely know about it. Any evidence she was presented with was flimsy, and the hearsay and rumors were so far out what she believed his character to be. This was a man who was adamantly against his wife having any help paid for for the children because of how it would look, a man who stayed in motels that were intentionally modest because of how it might look. He believed so deeply in striving for the idea of perfection. According to Coretta, he had a guilt complex, and even the smallest indiscretions, he felt the need to confess. How he was perceived and how he made others feel meant a lot to him. And in the spirit of nonviolence, having an affair would be nothing short of emotionally violent. But these rumors never affected his reputation in the way that Hoover hoped, and it seemed like nothing would stick. There was only one option to eliminate who the FBI described as a terrorist. Coretta had gotten numerous calls about an attack on Martin. But there's something about that phone, the call, when you lose someone you love. It just feels different than all the other calls, and this was no exception. Martin was in Memphis to assist in the Poor People's Campaign. The sanitation workers there were striking for better pay and working conditions, and everyone wanted better treatment and programs for the working class. He was staying at the Lorraine Hotel. Prior to his death, Coretta describes that day like any other day. The only thing that was a little peculiar is that he sent her flowers during his trip. Not just any flowers, but fake flowers, which is something he hadn't done before. She thought it maybe could be a mistake. He explained to her that he wanted to give her something that would last. Perhaps deep down, he knew that this trip to Memphis was going to be his last trip. People describe his last speech as one that seems to be purging himself from the fear of death. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. 
and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. It's a little eerie when you think about it. This woman, who has been so strong through everything else, received a call at 7.08 p.m. on April 4th, 1968, that was about to take something from her that was irreplaceable. Jesse Jackson called to let her know that Martin had been shot at the Lorraine Motel. She knew immediately that she had to try to go to him. She headed to the airport and took Dora McDonald, Martin's secretary, with her. Dora pulled her aside so that they could have a private moment in the bathroom. And when they looked at each other, they just broke down. The mayor barged into the bathroom and delivered the news that they both already knew deep down in their heart. Martin was dead. If any of you have the opportunity and your grandparents or parents are willing, I would ask them where they were when Martin Luther King Jr. was killed and how communities responded to his assassination. Coretta thought that it was ironic that people took to the streets and displayed active violence, even though Dr. King's legacy was inherently nonviolent. But she understood their pain nonetheless while encouraging nonviolent action. Coretta was now tasked with grieving her husband and going home and telling her children that their father was no longer with them in the physical world. Imagine having to explain to children that their father wasn't sick, that he wasn't in a car accident, but that he was shot because he believed in something, that he was trying to create better working conditions for people and a more equitable way of life. How do you do that and not have them believe that the world is evil? But she did it. Memphis would have to wait for now. The home was flooded with calls to express condolences. Bobby Kennedy put in additional phone lines to help and offered to fly Martin's body back home on a private plane for burial. She flew back to Atlanta with him, not by her side as before, but in a casket in the back of the plane. In the midst of planning his funeral, Coretta returned to Memphis to finish the march Martin wanted to carry out. Just four days after his assassination, at City Hall, she delivered a passionate speech without any notes. She then flew back to Atlanta where his funeral was held April 9, 1968. She dressed herself in black with a veil and walked with her children to view the body. She couldn't fall out or fall apart, although she was deeply sad. Harry Belafonte and her father went with her to the gravesite. 
Jackie Kennedy even came to visit her. She felt deeply for the Jackie Kennedys, the Betty Shabazzes of the world. She also felt that people can die, but the spirit of a movement doesn't, and Coretta intended to keep that spirit alive. Coretta spoke again at a peace rally in New York City, just a few weeks after his passing. She used his notes to come up with her own speech. The speech would be known as the Ten Commandments of Vietnam. My dear friends of peace and freedom, I come to New York today with the strong feeling that my dearly beloved husband, who was snatched suddenly from our midst slightly more than three weeks ago now, would have wanted me to be present today. Though my heart is heavy with grief from having suffered an irreparable personal loss, my faith in the redemptive will of God is stronger today than ever before. And she would continue speaking all over the world. She was the first woman to preach at the St. Paul Cathedral in London and deliver the class address at Harvard. She won the San Valentino Award in Italy for her peace effort. She would be the first black person and non-Italian to do so. She worked closely with the 1199 Union and walked to picket lines. This union, which was made up of mostly women, supported better working conditions for women in healthcare. It was clear that she had a voice and she was no stranger to speaking in front of crowds. She even found the time to write a letter to J. Edgar Hoover, saying, quote, It is unfortunate for our country that a person of such moral and mental capacity holds a position of such importance. It is equally unfortunate for race relations in these troubled times that a person revealed in this interview to be so arrogantly prejudiced against Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, and Blacks is a high government official." Unquote. She was there in 1980 when Zimbabwe celebrated their independence. She became friends with the first woman president of the Philippines, or in Asia for that matter. She was good friends with the first woman prime minister of India. There were world leaders who valued her ideas and her input. I mean, this is a woman who met with everyone from the Pope to the Dalai Lama. She accepted the International Leadership Award. She also became more and more involved in politics in the years after Martin passed. Martin was not big on endorsing a candidate. He felt that he could make things a lot more complicated than they needed to be. At this time, Coretta disagreed. She felt it was important for her to be actively involved in the political process. But she would soon start to understand his perspective. When Nixon was up for election, she had the opportunity to support Shirley Chisholm and chose not to. Instead, she chose to back the Democratic candidate that she thought had the best shot at beating Nixon. There were no hard feelings between the two, but much to her dismay, Nixon would win anyway. When Jesse Jackson ran, she had apprehensions about him as a viable candidate. In 1984, she spoke at the Democratic National Convention. Although she was not supporting Jesse, she made it clear that she wanted unity. Still, when she mentioned her support for the other white candidate, Andrew Young, she was booed by hundreds of people, allegedly many of which supported Jesse Jackson. This woman who had a reputation for her stoicism began to feel the tears start to well up. She was heartbroken. She said this following the incident, quote, My heart is heavy. For 20 years, I've been involved in the civil rights struggle, and I think my record speaks for itself. To those of you who booed Andrew Young, you need to say, I'm sorry, unquote. Once again, she was backing the candidate she felt had the best chance at beating a candidate she strongly opposed, Ronald Reagan. She wanted desperately to get him out of office, but just like with Nixon, she would be unsuccessful. 
But Reagan would end up having to do one thing for her during his presidency. Ironically enough, Ronald Reagan would be the person to sign the bill that made Martin Luther King Jr. a federal holiday in 1983. He had originally opposed the holiday. She fought tooth and nail for the holiday we celebrate every January. It was rejected over 70 times. Millions of signatures were acquired in support, and it took her 15 years to get the necessary two-thirds vote. She needed to make it a federal holiday so that it was celebrated nationwide. It was also important to her that it be on a day during the week so that people could have time off. Stevie Wonder even got involved and produced the happy birthday song many people sing today, and they sang it back then to spread awareness. I'm not going to sing it right now, but you get the point. She also turned her attention to South Africa during this time. She always saw parallels between the civil rights struggle in America and apartheid in South Africa. She was more than willing to protest and go wherever her voice was needed. She was even arrested during protesting in Washington, D.C. In 1986, she traveled to South Africa. She met with leaders there, including Nelson Mandela's wife, Winnie Mandela. The two women talked and hugged and cried. They shared an experience that so few understand. At this point, Mandela had been in prison for over 20 years. Martin had been deceased nearly 20 years. Coretta applied pressure to the Ronald Reagan administration to impose economic sanctions against South Africa until they made things right. Not only would she see the end to apartheid, but she would live to see Nelson Mandela elected as president in person. In 1989, when George Bush ran, she wondered if maybe she needed to change her approach. More and more black people were starting to run for office, and it made her feel a little divided to support some black people, but not others. She decided that she would no longer be endorsing candidates and wanted to take a nonpartisan approach. After all, the issues that she and Martin believed in did not depend on party lines. They were rooted in basic human rights, regardless of race or social class. She wanted to discuss these ideas with George Bush, but she was brushed off. Bush instead invited her to the Republican convention and used the opportunity to seat her next to his wife. Of course, the press was there and this interaction sent a very mixed message to the black community. At a glance, it seemed that she was there to support the Bush family, but that wasn't the entire truth of her being there. And speaking of the entire truth, a man by the name of Lloyd Jowers, an elderly man who was the owner of Jim's Grill. Jim's Grill was located in Memphis, Tennessee, near the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King was staying and where he was shot. Jowers started telling people that there was much more to the story of the assassination of Martin Luther King than was initially let on. Jowers started describing a government conspiracy nearly 25 years after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. He was interviewed on Primetime Live. During this interview, he incriminated himself and several others, claiming that he was involved in setting up a hit on MLK and that James Earl Ray was used more so as a scapegoat than anything else. He stated that the mafia, FBI, and local police had all teamed up against Martin and he was given $100,000 to help cover up the plot. After this claim surfaced, Coretta and the King family got to work on a lawsuit. They were going to sue Lloyd Jowers and anyone else who may have been involved for the killing of her husband. The lawyer that they would choose to represent them was acquainted with the family and believed James Earl Ray did not do it. Although Ray confessed he later took back his confession, he maintained that he did not do it. William Pepper represented James Earl Ray in a mock trial, but Ray would die a murderer. For Pepper, if Ray couldn't get the trial he felt he deserved, at least he could do was clear his deceased client's name with the new evidence of the conspiracy. It was a win for him, and of course, it would be a win for the King family to get to the bottom of what actually happened to Martin. The trial was held in Memphis and only lasted about a month. Seventy witness testimonies were involved, one of which, being Coretta, would even testify during the trial. When all was said and done, the verdict unanimously agreed and ruled in favor of the King family. They were awarded 
$100. Now, before anyone gets upset, this is all they were asking for. For them, the money, which they ended up donating, wasn't the important part. They wanted the truth to get out. In 2000, less than a year after the verdict, Jowers died. So this was just some crazy old man being crazy? Or was this his last confession? The jury unanimously agreed that there was a conspiracy. But even today, there was an argument to be made about the type of evidence presented during this trial. A lot of it is criticized for being hearsay or witness testimony about something that happened decades prior. Jowers was also accused of making the story up for clout and having some inconsistencies in his story. And of course, the United States government maintains that they were not involved in the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. So I guess you decide to agree with the verdict or believe there was no conspiracy. You be the judge. After the trial, Coretta garnered a laundry list of awards for her humanitarian efforts. A few include the Gandhi Peace Prize, her own award called the Coretta Scott King Award, which recognizes black authors and later illustrators of children's books, and being inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. But the thing that Coretta was probably the most proud of that she called her fifth child was the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change, a.k.a. the King Center, of which she served as president and chief executive officer. The King Center started in her basement and was founded in 1968. Coretta began planning for the community center almost immediately after her husband's death. If you've had the pleasure of visiting the King Center, then you know when you approach it, there is a beautiful blue pool. The pool has the words, we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like a river of righteousness, like a mighty stream. Coretta said that the design of this water feature was inspired by her visits to India when she saw the symbol of love that was the Taj Mahal. Everything about the design of this building was intentional, from Freedom Hall to the quotes and statues of Dr. King. They offer everything from nonviolence training, voter registration assistance to classroom resources, and a library. Once apartheid ended in South Africa, they taught 300,000 newly eligible voters how to respond to threats of violence with nonviolence. During the Rodney King riots, police reached out to her on how to keep the peace. Police officers have taken some of the nonviolence training offered in order to better serve the community. They had a summer institute for children that helped with academics and emotional development. They work with troubled youth and gang members regardless of affiliation to get them back on the right track. The King Center was designed to be a beacon and to be a safe space for those in the community. But with all the good, it didn't come without criticism. Some felt that selling merchandise was reminiscent of exploitation, a cash grab. But when you look at the community involvement in the mission of spreading nonviolence as a form of resistance, it was a dream realized. In her later years, Coretta became a vegetarian, inspired by her son, and later she became a vegan. Unfortunately, Coretta's health took a turn for the worse. If you watched her last speaking engagement in Selma, you could hardly tell that she was battling anything. During this time, she experienced several strokes as well as issues with her heart. She was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, which would lead to a respiratory failure. Coretta Scott King would pass away on January 30th, 2006, nearly 38 years after Martin passed. She was 78 years old. When you think about it, she was born April 27, 1927. Martin died April 4, 1968. He was born January 10, 1957, and Coretta passed January 30th of 2006. Four presidents attended her eight-hour funeral service. Her daughter, Bernice, who had decided to answer the call of ministry, delivered her eulogy. A year later, her daughter, Yolanda, passed away as well. And recently, Martin Luther King III passed. The remaining two King children are in their 60s. How old are your parents or grandparents? 
Recently, FBI documents previously classified were released regarding not only Martin Luther King Jr., but Coretta, who has her own file with the FBI. It's full of all kinds of details, including the death threats she continued to receive long after Martin passed. Coretta never remarried. She remained committed to the vision she and Martin shared. And, with everything, she remained true to herself until the very last moment. Until next time. This episode of the Redacted History Podcast was researched and written by Jordan Howard. It was narrated and edited by Andre White. If you like this episode of the Redacted History Podcast, please consider going to leave a like and a review. And also subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Be sure to go check out the Redacted History Book Club. You can find the link to the book in the show notes below. And the Redacted History Book Club episode is airing February 29th.